welcome to a new episode of Desolation Radio. So, Dan's not hosting because Dan's not here. He is busy in a saxophone lesson, so it's just me. Right, normally we'd go into Wales this week, or what's we've kind of named what's happening in Wales because we're not weekly, really. But because with this upcoming episode, we ended up going over allocated time, we thought we'd just let it fly because we didn't really want to cut anything so we thought it was all really important stuff. So this week we're joined by Josh Walker, who's going to tell us about his experience fighting ISIS with the YPG. Okay, thanks. Okay, we're joined by Josh Walker, the famous or infamous uh, Welsh YPG volunteer. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. And as we were just chatting off air, the only Welsh volunteer in the, the YPG. As far as I'm aware, yeah, the only one managed to get there you were used in a propaganda video when the, the Welsh element was emphasised. Yeah, um, as far as I remember, the caption on the video uh, specified that I was um, Galeri. Oh, uh, nice. So, and what was, your, what was your Kurdish name? Uh, <laughs> my Kurdish name was uh, Salahuddin Deniz. Nice man. What does that translate to? Um, well, Salahuddin is the name of Saladin. He, he was Kurdish. Yeah. Um, also the leader of the Hedepe, the... Um, People's Democratic Party, I think it is, oh, in nice. Turkey, who's in, in jail at the moment, obviously. And Deniz means Dennis. the sea. <laughs> yeah, well, essentially. Oh, does it, yeah. Well, that was the funny thing, is when, when they suggested Deniz as the second name, I was just like, yeah, because that's my dad's name. That's oh, sweet. So. There you go. All right, so thanks so much for coming on, Josh. I guess we're just going to go through the chronology of the, what happened, basically. So um, what, 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 happened? Hap- what, what happened? Yeah, why did you, well, why did you decide to volunteer? Um... um well, there's, you know, there's not much like uh, Rojava or I suppose the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria as it is now in the world. There are very few actual leftist projects, if you will, in the world, leftist struggles. Oh, on that kind what, of what, what about Wales? What about Welsh Labour? They came up with a didn't they? <laughs> Yeah, the, when when Welsh Labour has an armed women's uh, division, then I might um, consider them somewhere on the same level. Yeah, they're not as, they're not a radical, or but yeah, it is an interesting social experiment as we've talked about with uh, with Beth and previously. So were you, you know, where were you? Were you in uni? Yeah, I was in university in Aberystwyth at the time, surrounded by many people who loved to think they knew all about the Middle East and how the funny brown Muslim people there couldn't ever possibly do democracy and not seeming to understand that our governments had spent like the last hundred years like either murdering or helping be murdered all the people who uh, struggled for democracy. In was that, that the students or the faculty? Uh, a little yeah. bit of both although we did have one amazing um, Turkish Kurdish lect- lecturer who she, she was pretty um, on point when it came to all that stuff. Even she confused a lot of the um, the names of the the Kurdish groups, though, because uh, see, Kurdistan, aside from being rich in say oil wealth, whatever, is also the number one producer of alphabet soup in the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you were, were you interested in? Obviously, you are you know, you, you are a leftist. Were you so you were taking a serious interest in basically the, this project, for want of a better word, that was going on? Yeah, for years actually, since I'd. I mean, before the Syrian civil war broke out, I had sympathies with the Kurdish national struggle, if you, if you will. Obviously, 
the Kurdish area of Iraq, despite not being quite as revolutionary yet as, say, the area in Turkey or Syria, still, you know, they have the right to speak their own language without being gassed and everything. And as they were a stateless minority that lives in the mountains and has a funny throaty language with lots of <laughs> sounds in it, um, yeah, I felt as, as a Welsh person a bit of sympathy with them. Um, and then obviously when the Syrian civil war broke out and I heard about the YPG, I was very supportive of them. You know, it had been something I'd been thinking about doing for a long time because, um, like I said, there's not much like it. And, and just, I felt like sitting around while it was happening. There's kind of an interesting, it's not a tension, but it, it is an interesting element because on the one hand, there's an urgency of sort of defending you know, the Kurdish struggle and defending the Kurds against the very real imminent threats. But there's also this desire to sort of build something. Is is that how you felt? Or Yes. I mean, cause it's a thing that it's, it's often difficult to talk about it, but because um, like the YPG originated in the Kurdish areas and originally the areas controlled by them or connected to them were just the small Kurdish majority areas, uh, you know, around the town of Derek in the northeast, you had Jazira in kind of in the center, uh, sorry, you had Kobani in the center, um, and you had Afrin in the west. Um, and these were a couple of million at the most, probably smaller than, definitely smaller in area and smaller in population than Wales, for example. But the ideology was about a lot more than just... Kurdish nationalism. The the fact that they were trying to build a system that was truly multicultural in the sense of having a place for people of all religions and ethnicities, having autonomy for people, having people's languages and cultures and everything equally respected, and obviously completely radical attitude towards the rights of women. That that was something a lot more worthwhile to me personally than just nationalism. Because more nationalism and more national divisions isn't going to potentially be an answer to the problems of the Middle East. You know, I think if all the imperialists left tomorrow, you would still face a hell of a lot of problems in that region, you know, as much as US meddling and so on is a large part to do with it. Yeah, so so for me it was it was about what what exactly they were trying to build, the fact that they were going beyond just a Kurdish struggle, that their enemies were so evil, you know, that, that it was one of the few examples of the closest you could get to good versus evil, like a kind of light grey versus like pure black sort of thing. Um, In terms of the uniform as well, that's what ISIS were wearing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, although they also seem to have cottoned on to the fact, they seem to be the only army in the region that's cottoned on to the fact that maybe in the desert you should wear desert colours, but um, that's no, just Just thing. Adidas trackies, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Style over camo. Okay, so there's an ideological you know, uh, affinity there and something mm. you wanted sort of to engage with. You know, what happened then? You, you, you thought, right, I'm going to go over. And how did you say, what was the next step? Um, I had to get the money together, then contact... Well, I contacted the Lions of Frujava Facebook page, which isn't going anymore. Um, I haven't even heard of the the kind of founder of it in a long time. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah, so, so that was still going at the time. I contacted them. Um, I told them, you know, straight up that, 
you know, at most I've fired like a shotgun and an air rifle in my life, but I, I study international politics and, um, you know, stuff that covers strategy and intelligence and all that kind of stuff. I can speak a little bit of Arabic, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've read uh, Abdullah Ojalan's Democratic Confederalism and so on, and I want to come over and do what I can to help and see the revolution, all that kind of stuff. Um, they put me in contact with a YPG guy in northern Iraq. Then, you know, we arranged a date that I'd fly over and they'd meet me. And then I bought the tickets and that was that. I actually stopped stopped on the way for a holiday in uh, Istanbul because I knew I'd never get to go back to Turkey. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Seems quite nice. I had a stop over in Istanbul. It, was, it looked, it looked uh, quite... Buzzing like turn up oh, to like lovely. Lo- turn up to the YBG meeting with like loads of Turkish delights for them. <laughs> hey guys, uh, <laughs> I did actually. I gave <laughs> I gave the one of the guys who ran the safe house my um my box of Turkish delight that I'd got there. Cause, uh, you know, to turn up with a gift. It's yeah. polite. Isn't it? I mean, be on holiday. You have to you know <laughs> share around. So at any stage when you're sort of booking a ticket, like, I mean, it sounds bizarre. Like, I mean, there's that Louis C.K. thing about, you know, soldiers traveling to a war zone like on a plane. I mean, did it feel weird? I mean, like just packing up and booking a ticket to Iraq and what did you have to take with you? I had some trouble getting explicit answers about what exactly I'd need. Um, and I, I think to, to some degree, there's a worry that... Now, see, I took a lot of precautions as far as it went to, as far as internet security was yeah. concerned and stuff. So, so what I was doing with this was separated, with the organizing it was separated from me, like booking the tickets and all this kind of stuff. But I, I do think that they had some trepidation that, you know, if they said, okay, bring this, this, yeah, this and that, and then that's what you get. Mm. Yeah, you know they're going to look out for people who have that in their bag. Or Why have you got a YPG flag and an AK in your luggage? <laughs> oh, I just business family. But no, but, but these are the things I was generally thinking about when you see the people going over. You think, well, presumably, you, I mean, obviously, stuff gets given to you. But on the other hand, I definitely want to take a chest plate or something like that. <laughs> take <laughs> yeah, Nintendo, I, yeah. I, I wish I could have taken stuff like that. I mean, some of the American guys turned up, you yeah, know, Kevlar ready to go and all that yeah. kind of stuff. It was. You know, it must have been great for them. But I went most of my time there without, you know, body armor or anything that managed to get a helmet like just over halfway through. What I actually took with me was like a little, like one of those little military cooking stove kind of things, medical stuff, any like bandages, diarrhea medicine, anything like that that I thought I'd need. And I went over there, a compass this kind of stuff. Didn't um, um, Piss Pig Grandad have a lot of... You mentioned before you had um, diarrhea like quite a bit. Is yeah, it like, quite a common thing or something? The, the water quality is really terrible. You know, from, from when you arrive in the academy, we had a massive water tank that looked like it hadn't been uh, cleaned out uh, since Daddy uh, Assad was in power. Um, there was like a dead bird floating it in it and all this kind of stuff. They That's they it. try and toughen up your immune system for when you go out to the front seat, but you, you still get sick. I mean, everyone's washing their ass with their hands and like some water and eating com- communally and all that kind of stuff. It's... That's it for me. That, like that, like that. I'm I'm off. <laughs> Goodbye. This is still better than my uni accommodation. <laughs> so, all right, so, but I mean, so no no glitches with security and stuff going over. They just think you're a. You must stick out like a sore thumb, though. Just a white westerner on those planes to Iraq. 
I looked like a kind of intern BBC journalist yeah. and I packed my bag like a tourist. Yeah. I, was, I, I, I took a bunch of just extra random clothes that I wasn't too worried about losing and yeah. stuff like that just to kind of pad out my bag and that kind of thing. So you land in, where did you fly uh, into? Sulaimania. And then what happens? You meet someone, they take you to a place... Um, you wait around for a bit until they can take you across the border, essentially. And to get across the border, you have to take a, a very, very long car journey, and then um, meet up with some uh, meet up with some Han Solo types, and uh, <laughs> you know, some big hairy mustachioed guy who growls a lot, and um, sneak across the border in the middle of the night on foot. I, I listened to the Chapo Trapos episode with. Uh, that guy pissed big ground out of and he said like the the crossing the border was horrific like just he exaggerates quite a lot but um i mean when we came over it took us like 10 hours or something fucking ridiculous Walking. um to walk there were there are times where you have to crawl on your belly wade through rivers and all that kind of stuff or Rather, wade through a little bit of river, then get on a raft with shitloads of people and hope no one like tips the raft over and falls in. Um, you have to avoid Peshmerga patrols, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, it's pretty hairy. Just uh, to clarify, it's obviously Peshmerga, they're Kurds as well. Yeah, but Iraq. Yes. But, so what was the, in a sense, like the division, I suppose, in that sense? Well, it's just Barzani's, um It's just Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, essentially... <laughs> Just, just to sum up quickly, that the KDP that rule northern Iraq are kind of nationalist, capitalist, kind of run by a kind of corrupt mafia kind of family who have a history of betraying their own people. <coughs> and parallels with Wales, yeah. Just, and yeah. <laughs> now, there's a, the, around the era of Sulaimania, that's controlled by a different party, um, the party of the first president of Iraq post. Uh, the first elected president of Iraq post uh, U.S. invasion, and they're they're a little more kind of I like to describe them as the Kurdish Labour Party, sort of a little bit more kind of centre left ish. Still shit. Um, yeah, but but more friendly to the YPG, whereas the yeah. the more conservative ones they have um, they o- often collaborate with Turkey. They blockade the border. They arrest. Uh, YPG members put them in prison with ISIS guys and all this kind of stuff. YPG volunteers, a lot of them have spent time in prisons in northern Iraq because of these guys. All this kind of stuff. They is that is that like? I mean, I'm trying to get. I mean, I know obviously that the Barzani's lot are, are thugs and and so on, but I'm trying to get my head around the that aspect of it. Is it is there an eth- any ethnic element? To the, I mean, they're all Kurds. What's the what's the where's the hostility? No, I mean there's a there's a a slight different in, difference in dialect in in Rojava, for example. They speak uh, Kurmanji and it's Sorani in northern Iraq mostly. But this is the thing. It's one of the problems that I've had with the way that we view Middle Eastern politics in the West is that. Here we have high-minded, civilized disagreements over ideology and stuff like that. We we weren't fighting the Russians because they were, you know, there was some suggestion of them being Asiatic hordes and all that kind of stuff. We didn't fight the Germans because they were a different tribe, really. You know, these were ideological disagreements. You know, the war against Napoleon, that was about the French Revolution. It wasn't about this kind of thing. And it's exactly the same over there. 
A British capitalist is happy to beat down on a British socialist because they are a threat to their power. And just the same, a Kurdish capitalist is quite happy to beat down on other Kurdish people if it keeps their power, especially if they're revolutionary leftists. It's just othering, isn't it? It's just like, yeah. you know, presumably there must be some inter-ethnic or uh, tribal beef rather right. than... Uh, allowing them the agency yeah they're all uh, fighting over the same goat or something like yeah something horrific like that but that is interesting I and mean, what you say is really important about the well we know that you know many welsh nationalists wouldn't agree but obviously nathan and i and, and presumably you josh we all agree that you know working people everywhere have far more in common with each other than they do the, the capitalist class of, of their own nation so so that's basically it then the reason why they and then, uh, so, the, sorry I, I did interrupt and then you and then you get there presumably Ah, right, yeah. So, um, ideological ramblings aside. No, we'll um, get back to that. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there is something I do want to say quickly, though, just, just while it's on my mind, is that that kind of thing of we have more in common than we have difference, as someone who's actually spent a long time actually yeah. living with people, di- different people around the world and everything, not just, you know, going on a backpacking holiday or whatever, but living day to day, getting to really know people, they are to the point where some of the Kurdish guys would remind me of friends back home and stuff like that. And the, it's the level to which that once you get past the communication difficulties, everyone is basically the same asshole. Is is incredible, really. Shared humanity, man. Yeah, and it's the other ring, isn't it? That that is the problem. Is the exact problem, in, especially in the, the way the West views the wars in Syria. It's just the, those people over there. You know, they're not. Mm. They're just treated as other, not human, not with the same emotions and aspirations and uh, and concerns as us. And right. Just, just like in it was like, is it that documentary about Vietnam when they they have all these clips about American generals basically saying about you know the gook or you know the Vietnamese are basically you know, basically saying they don't mourn their mourn their children and stuff, and then it cuts to this horrific scene of all these you know, Vietnamese funerals and all the the mothers and and wives and families of all these NVA fighters killed, you know, mourning their dead in the same way you know we would. It's just uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's an artificial barrier that's created by the media and there's another thing on that point as well that that is quite important that often gets missed is that this creates a a genuine problem for the struggle over there in in the sense that western and and, or media outside of kurdistan and so on so forth and outside northern syria will no matter how many times you know, no matter how many Arabs join the SDF and how many other ethnic minorities to the point where, you know, it's not really majority Kurdish force anymore, no matter how, for how many years they have advocated a non-nationalist ideology and all this kind of stuff, they the, they still get reported as being the Kurds. They still get treated as Kurdish forces and if if people if people in Arab areas, for example, come across this kind of stuff and get that message communicated to them, when the SDF r- arrives in their areas, it create it makes it a lot harder <laughs> to be welcomed by them because they expect it to be a Kurdish nationalist thing. And people in Turkey assume that what's going on there is a Kurdish nationalist thing, and they're trying to colonize cities like Mambij and all this kind of nonsense. So it has very real effects on what's going on. You, you completed your arduous journey over the border, and then what happens? Um, you get taken to a training academy, basically. 
you know, small collection of buildings. So there's a bunch of you living up in the northeast and spend a month kind of adjusting to the new reality and learning learning Kurdish, learning about the ideology and the history of the area, having the most basic of basic training that I could possibly describe. I mean, we had to get up at five uh, o'clock in the morning to do physical training and all that kind of stuff every day. But when it came to, you know, the actual details of military training, it isn't much more than like learning what an AK is and which end to point at the enemy and well, shooting it a couple This is of actually times. one of the things that Nathan and I were, were thinking about and, well, concerned about, I guess. We were just wondering about you know, the, the nature of the training because, I mean, obviously we've heard a lot about, you know, there's ideological elements to it. But in terms of the military element, I mean, how do you, I mean, in retrospect, do you feel that it was appropriate? Are they doing basically what, they, is it about resources and... A lot of it is about resources. They they still have even even though they're a little bit better supplied than you know say the PKK have been in the history or or even the YPG was at the beginning all that kind of stuff. They still have this kind of guerrilla mentality of you know conserving all their bullets and stuff like that. That's what we'd be be told when we said, oh, "Can we you know practice?" shooting and all that kind of stuff a lot of the time it'd be like well you can only shoot a couple of bullets because we can't just waste a load of bullets we need to save everyone we've got and you have to pick them up later and yeah (laughs) yeah just hammer them back into shape i did read that um in some cases that um because some of the foreign fighters had military experience they were you know coming out of the army and they they were in some instances actually teaching the instructors you know basic military maneuvers did you like come across any of that? To to some degree, there's often an issue here. I find in that that sometimes Western soldiers over there don't quite realise that everything they learnt was within a wider context of what was possible mm. to do in in that kind of thing, and that that a popular militia, a revolutionary group can't quite operate on the same assumptions, the same rules, even with the same tactics and so on that that the Western military does. The other hand, actually, yes, a lot of the time they would be teaching the rest of us things that would actually be useful. On the the former thing, do you mean, I mean, because parallels are really interesting in terms of thinking back to, you know, the Spanish Civil War debates between the anarchists and the International Brigade, you know, and the anarchists would always kick off and say, well, we don't want rank structures, you know, we don't want basically that your communist discipline and the International Brigade sort of had a hard time dealing with all that. And there were huge arguments, you know, the anarchists would say, you know, it's very important that we, we maintain non-hierarchical structures and it, that governed everything. Is that what you mean by, you know, the, the refusal of what's, you know, this idea of what's possible? Not quite. It's things like, You've just no as arm, a simple no one, if, if you, yeah, if you, you, you don't have armour, you don't have a helmet, there are some ways of fighting that you can't do. You know, if you don't have medical evacuation by helicopter, if you don't have smoke grenades, you don't have... Yeah, have machine guns. But the, a lot of the stuff the old veterans showed me was just stuff about how to, like, bloody look and shoot round a corner without getting yourself just shot in the face. Yeah. Which, you know, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to do them down in any kind of way, but there, there are sometimes the same things don't work in, in different in different situations i think sometimes they didn't maybe they didn't have like a decent instructor there or whatever i mean i guess the issue is of course 
correct me if I'm wrong, you know, ISIS are probably the, the strongest, well, not guerrilla army, one of the, the strongest non-state actor of all time, formed of the core of the old Iraqi army. These are battle-hardened blokes with ridiculous amounts of training. Some of them, you know, former regular military, you know, the, the, the command structure is all straight from the higher echelons of the Iraqi army. I wouldn't put too much credit on, and this is something that may sound even slightly racist when first saying it, but that's it's not as bad as it sounds. I wouldn't <laughs> put any good currency on the amount of discipline in any Arab army, okay. um, to be quite frank. See, see, this is the thing. The anarchists were just wrong. Having a non-hierarchical military structure is suicidal. Um, the, the issue when it comes to self-organization is of voluntary hierarchies. And, and the, the commanders in the YPG were people, for the most part, the, the actual cadre commanders were people who'd been in the party, in the struggle for a long time, had fought their way up kind of thing, and were respected and so on, but still most of the time were treated basically exactly the same as everyone else. That said, when you're in a firefight, you don't have time to make democratic decisions. Should we vote on whether we go left or vote on whether we go right? Do we vote on whether we use the rocket launcher against that tank or that building? You, you don't have the time for that nonsense. And there, there will be times when people who are lower in the hierarchy or whatever step forward and or you as a squad come together and, and you, you work together and each you decide something and it's, it's good. And, and, you know, like we did that sometimes when setting up defenses and all that kind of thing. I mean, I kind of forgot where I was going with oh, this. No, so but... we'll, go back, we'll go back to, let's pick back up where... We're at the training. So what happens? You finish your, your four weeks training. You have a little pass out ceremony. So to speak. <laughs> well, because just the, 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 those the are the things you see on Twitter. That's kind what. Of, uh... And then what happens? Is it, you know, are they like, right, you know, separated into platoons? You go to the front line or? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason we didn't have one is because there were like four of us when I was, I was there. You in, in, in my, uh, Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got split into... Basically, we're told that two of us were going to uh, Jazeera Canton and two of us were going to Kobani Canton. So Jazeera being the eastern part and Kobani obviously being in the middle. Did that suck? Um, I mean, you know, it, it, I'm assuming it must suck being split up from people you've gone through training with. Yeah, I got Depends put... you like him. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Hope you get put on the front line. I, I didn't get put with the person I would have preferred to have been with. And the guy I was put with <laughs> spent all of training, God rest his soul and everything, but he did spend all of training being an absolute fucking pain in the ass. And so I was a bit, I was a bit nervous oh, about great, six that. months with this guy. <laughs> a little bit, uh, I have to admit. We, you know, he, he did perk up a lot. And was a lot more handy once we were out of the academy yeah. than he was in it. I think he was just raring to go to the front line and was really depressed. The academy kind of drives people a little bit insane. I was just wondering if we could perhaps talk about um, the other types of volunteers that came over. Because, you know, obviously you went over for ideological purposes. But um, you have a lot of people, like, I was reading things, you know, just people who just watching Ameri- the news. Mad yeah, Ameri- Mad Americans. Um, I saw an article earlier when I was doing some background reading. And it was about this... Builder from Bracknell who sold his house to just fight ISIS. Oh yeah, um, but it's really funny because like he just sounds like the proper like gym dude who just like kind of hypes himself up. And he's like, look at me, I'm a ex bouncer type deal. 
But he was just like, oh, yeah, I sold my house. <clears throat> Six figures, whatever, no big deal. Spent it all on, like, weapons. But I was just wondering, you know, in terms of, like, that type of attitude, does that go far out there? Because I know with Lions of Rojava, they were saying, like, you know, we don't want Rambo types coming over. See, I, I take a much more, you know, say I had any experience commanding a squad of men or some shit like that. I might consider that each person... To put it in a really lame, kind of Western, comfortable way that people will understand, it's a little bit like different classes in a video game. You know, you have your heavy, you have your scout, you have your whatever. Now, people who who do have a kind of gung-ho attitude can get other people killed and can be a pain in the ass to deal with, can, you know, if they're not interested in learning about the society, the ideology, the language, all that kind of thing, or at least respecting it on some basic level, they can cause a hell of a load of problems. Mm. At the same time, if someone's just ideological and not willing to to make some physical effort to kind of uh, get themselves fitter and everything, as, as fucking hard and pain in the ass as it can be, they're going to be problems as well. It's It's hard... You know, people make sweeping generalizations about people who, you know, are oh, there some people who are, you know, the military with unfinished business. There are some people who are the starry-eyed idealists. There are some people who are, you know, the adventurers. There, and and yeah, it's true. There are these kind of types of people, broadly speaking, that come. But everyone's idiosyncrasies can make them better or worse for a combat zone. Some people you really don't expect can really pull through when shit hits the fan. And some people who are used to, who are ne- have never been in a situation where their, their lives have been on the line, they can snap. Even people who have done it many times, but they suddenly find themselves in a much worse situation than they 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 dealt with before. You know, some again, some ex-soldier who maybe doesn't have all the support that he had, or maybe he's just had one too many battles. Those guys can snap as well. You know, so so for example, one of the guys I was with was an adventurer type. And and he wasn't that interested in the ideology. He didn't have uh, military experience. Um, you know, he cared about people being able to live their own lives and he wanted to fight ISIS. And, you know, he's a decent bloke, don't get me wrong. But, yeah, he, he, he saved my life. He was very useful. He fixed up loads of the... He knew all, all his shit about guns because he came from a country where he's allowed to own them. So he was able to fix some of ours when they had problems and stuff. Not mine, I... You have to <laughs> to work, mine. and all this kind of stuff. And in the end of the day, he gave his life in the cause of the revolution. So, and and you know, other guys, yeah, they came. So, like Jack Holmes, he came as as a kind of lefty, maybe more of the Labour type. Um, at least according to what his parents and his friends were saying to me before. I don't, I didn't know him that well. But the impression I get from him is, is that he was a bit more of that type. He learnt the language really well. He really cared about the people there and stuff. He had no military training. He was a IT technician, something like that, before he went. He gave his life in the cause of the revolution. And he'd been there three times. He fought really hard. Um, you know, another guy who's a bloody history nerd from Ohio. He'd been there for a year, was a really solid guy. And then other guys who, who were big macho types... They left pretty quickly or they fought their whole way through. They came back time and time again. They got around to learning the language. They they understood more about the region when they were ignorant before. And, and you know, they did some damn heroic things as well. So it's, it's very dangerous to talk about 
Well, it's just, it's not dangerous. It's just unfair to talk about groups of people. And, but yes, just being a gung-ho idiot is, will not get you very far out there. No, it's a really good point though, man. And what about, just before we go back to like where you get sent off, do you mind talking briefly about some of the ideological training? Because I mean, what we want to do, I mean, I presume you're an anarchist type. Um, or may, Yeah, um, I guess what we want to do as a podcast is, you know, we want to eventually start introducing anarchist ideas. And um, do you mind t- telling us just briefly about, you know, this idea of democratic confederalism and stuff that you got taught in the academy, like ideologically? Because I think, I can only speak personally, but my sort of journey has been the classic, probably like Labour, get disillusion of Labour, think apply to the solution, get disillusion applied, you know, and then very, very, very early age, you know, become a communist, become disillusioned of communism, and then you kind of end up sort of a decentralised, non-hierarchical forms of socialism. Um, and that's why, well, you know, call, or call it anarchism. And I was just wondering if there's any in, anything you can tell us about what you got taught at the academy that might be interesting to, for elucidating that for the people that are listening. Yeah, hmm. where to start, really. I always have difficulty saying exactly where my ideological allegiances are whatever not quite an apoist which is the ideology of the pkk the ypg and so, so on who, and so what's forth. an apo what's an apoist um serok apo is oh, leader right. apo the uh, abdullah jalan's kind of nickname i guess oh, right, and yeah. so apoist is obviously it's their version of maoist marxist yeah, whatever sure. i sometimes like to say i'm a marxist of the groucho variety <laughs> And I have yet to find a party that I'd be a member of that'd have me, or whatever the quote is. <laughs> um, don't want to be part of any. Uh, yeah, that would have any <laughs> club that would have me. Yeah. yeah, but so I'm open to parts from as long as it's for more freedom, more good for the people, and less their lives being controlled and owned by crazy people, essentially for just for profit and everything. Um, so in in a way, democratic confederalism is somewhat like this obviously like i was saying there's things where military discipline and so on is important you know you need to make decisions quickly so on but generally it is more of a anarchist type ideology because it's based on well saying that it's kind of like soviets in a way yeah it's it's a council-based system going from the neighborhood level all the way up through, you know, neighborhoods, towns, uh, areas and cantons and so on, where decisions are made through direct democracy as much as possible. I like to give the example but because I had to, you know, I was in the military there, essentially. I spent most of my time on bases or on the front or whatever. Um, I didn't get to see the normal day-to-day workings of of this quite in the way I'd like. But there's things that showed it. Like, for example, there was a town we weren't allowed to go in because their council had voted that they didn't want armed people around. Uh, They were sick of it after all these years of war, so we had to take a detour around the town. Uh, And that's it, you know. um, They try and get everyone involved in the community and these councils have various rules. Like if you have... So many, you know, if you have the presence of a minority ethnic group, um, they have to have representation on the council and decent representation as well. Um, There has to be at least 40% of either gender. In this case, the culture there still is very solidly on the two gender thing. Give them a bit of time on all that kind of stuff. Come on. So either 40% men or 40% women and 60% the other. 
all these kind of things and generally prefers sort of cooperative based worker owned means of production and so on and so forth i'd say that's kind of the basis of it the the fundamental basis is you know feminism uh, socialism ecology direct democracy that kind of thing and is that hammered into in the academy sort of like these are the principles yeah yeah there's the economic stuff has gone into a bit less i mean when you think about the fact that a lot of the people around there you know there were these big landowners but then a lot of the people around there were small shopkeepers and stuff oh it's almost like being back (laughs) Uh, fireworks you hope anyway like yeah (laughs) yeah speak for yourself Um, (laughs) someone's shooting seagulls yeah about time yeah well, uh, sorry, sorry, Josh. I said before that, um, you know, I was wondering whether I was going to be worried, I was going to be freaked out um, when I heard fireworks coming home from Wars End. What I didn't expect was that I was being, going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Oh, shit. Uh, oh, no, it's not. I was speaking to someone earlier in work who said that they played so much Call of Duty at one point and they ended up getting like a bit of PTSD. Like so, it was in a pub <laughs> and someone moved like... Um, like he said it was uh, like a metallic chair and he ah. just like fucking jumped. He's like, ah, oh, sorry guys. I thought sure, I was that's always sunny and he gets traumatized from the virtual reality. Yeah. All right. So you, these principles are inculcated mm. sort of in the academy, but obviously less of the economy because it's more about principles, presumably when you go into the. Yeah. Well, so when you are in the YPG, now some people might tell you slightly different things i I was pretty lucky that i was always in good units of all cadro like all party members all um really solid people and essentially the you know everything is provided for you 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 bunk up in barracks or houses whatever altogether or you know on the fucking dirt um or on a roof whatever you sleep together in the not literal sense, that's not allowed at all between men, women, or anything else. Didn't know wanking's banned as well. Yeah. Right? Yes, masturbating's banned. Why is that like? Um, it seems cruel and unusual punishment. That there, there is a slightly weird thing which I don't particularly agree with, but they they do have a very kind of conservative attitude towards sex over there and sexual things, and there is kind of a thing of. It's almost like this sort of can't just like I don't know whether put your it's belt around your neck and just jack off. Like yeah. that. No, <laughs> ridiculous. No, I mean even sometimes sneaking into the what shower. What kind of utopia is this? Is, and and there's all these Damn you, all these young, beautiful, passionate revolutionaries. You know the men and the women, and and they're probably gonna die. And they can't bone. It's completely in, inhumane. Again, straight in the plane back. Uh, any um, any communal eating or, uh, or or weird hygiene with the with the hand, and then not the, I say not the wanking. <laughs> <laughs> Sex. Yeah, uh, don't don't go out to um, Syria if you want to get laid there. No, if you want to have your heart broken when you fall in love with. A be just absolutely beautiful revolutionary woman, and then she dies in some horribly grim way, and then you have to be guard of honor with your unit at a funeral. And but yeah, it's uh, although Bethan did say that Bethan said that Tinder works out there actually. It is, if you ever had it, you know, not the, not either. Was it repurposed for platonic reasons? <laughs> yeah, they changed. They changed it. Yeah, it was just meet friends. 
I, I think as friends reunited. <laughs> I think it's possible some of the Kurdish people over there would use Tinder just because they saw the fire symbol and got really excited. They love fires. It's you know, it's really great. That's getting, but not for the troops. No Tinder. I I honestly think, like all jokes aside, you know, even though you you can't stop people from feeling feelings and and there is you know there were some people who were definitely having a thing going on just behind cl- well obviously behind closed doors but behind out of heart. sight out of mind kind of thing and and you know if they got caught they'd get in trouble but if they didn't and people would kind of they'd know but they'd turn a blind eye you know and that was with locals especially older ones who getting on you know I just still but, can't get over the wanking thing. Mm. Like, I mean, in a war zone. Um, yeah, but then you are all you you are all sleeping like six, eight to a room. Circle and they're, 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 they're like sat- the they're that- like in what's, go- what's going on in your sleeping bag. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bug in my sleeping yeah. bag. God yeah, damn, yeah, no, I'm gonna, God I'm damn was, these mosquitoes. I got them. Yeah, I'm gonna sleep now. <laughs> just, just a really bad itch. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got them all now, and I'm really tired. <laughs> But that's what I was going to say is honestly, I do think the fact that that anything is off limits between men and women and so on, it does force you yeah. to to see women, your comrades, yeah. as nothing other than your comrades. Yeah, not And even though object. you can't help, you, you might not be able to help feeling feelings. Like, you're not even supposed to have a best friend or whatever. Um, you're not supposed to prefer people over others and you're supposed to have time for everyone sort of thing. You know, there were still local guys who I preferred to hang out with more. Yeah, there were still foreigners who I preferred. There were still, you know, there were so, still some of the YPJ I kind of fancied. But regardless, you treat everyone with the same same respect because there, there's nothing else you can do. That's and really then once you've done that, you kind of... It's actually a little bit to the problem where I'm having trouble getting a girlfriend now because I'm just so out of the out of uh, such a feminist. Too, yeah, just, too, uh, too, I'm too so out of practice. <laughs> I'm just about to go up and sh- shake hands with them, like ask permission <laughs> oh, before I go in, yeah. their, in their front Salute in their front them. garden. You know what I mean? We couldn't if we were going to visit the women's base. We couldn't just walk in and say hi. It, like we just walk onto the grounds. We had to stand outside and shout, um, you know, for permission essentially all that kind of stuff we had to you know we would all be lying there watching tv on the day when nothing was really happening with our shirts open which is something you're not allowed to do just I'll, I'll sort of like yeah <laughs> yeah all, all striking each other oh, <laughs> <laughs> like a light breeze like brushing it like you know the wifey chase here hey would you um, mind comrade would you mind bringing this uh <laughs> this after sun into my back lower <laughs> a little lower yeah no, so so all those blokes would be sitting around watching TV and and with our with our feet out like our socks off and our uh, our shirts open and everything, just trying to survive in the heat. And then we'd hear just in the distance the voice of one of the YPJ coming like, oh, "Come on!" And and everyone was like, "Oh no!" Like, okay, smarten up your uniform, look look presentable, practicing you know. muscles away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> stop doing press ups. Like. Yeah. <laughs> stop spotting me. We got a, we got a visitor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you've you've left uh, training basically. You've been split up. There's four of you. You've been split into two. You were sent east or were you sent west? Um, I sent to Kabani, which 
I um, will tell anyone who gets what I mean um, and anyone who will listen that I'm very proud to be in a Kabani table. I was in a Kabani table. Not only was I in a Kabani table, I was in a Kabani assault table and we didn't get paid. The guys in Jazeera, they sat around with their $100 a month lighting it on fire. Did you have to call like the HR department or something? of uh... The YPG. Yeah. No. Can you put me through the payroll, please? <laughs> well, this was the thing. It was still... This is the way I see it anyway, is that the locals in Kobani were more hardcore because Kobani had gone through the most hardcore shit. Yeah, of course. And so most of them, they were a bit younger. They were a bit more dedicated. You didn't need money. Like, it would take fucking forever. It took about six weeks for me to get a belt. But... You could get essentially whatever you wanted from the party. The party will provide Haval as kind of the attitude. And often they, they wouldn't or would take ages. But um, often often they would. But you, you couldn't go to the shop anyway. So what did you need the money for? Whereas in Jazeera, I think a lot of the guys there were... It was a much larger Kurdish area. Uh, more spread out. More, they needed to recruit more from family people and so on and so forth. So, so they would be given money that would go to their families. And as many of the people in Kobani's families were sadly in refugee camps or something, that that I guess that was decided not to be as necessary. Just um, a little question. I don't know if it's a bit odd, but I mean, I guess because you know you said about the poor infrastructure. I mean, were you paid in cash or was it like you were trying? You give well, like bank like I said, details. I wasn't. I wasn't paid. Oh, but, no, but, I mean, but people would be. Yeah, yeah people, if you people were, paid, were paid. Just imagine. <laughs> there, there was this guy, so I'm told, this guy who would come around every month with just like, just sacks. But then, in what, each what, sack what money though? Syrian, Syrian pounds? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's dinars, Syrian pounds. And it's, it's like 100 quid is like 70,000 or something. So 100 British pounds would be about 70,000 Syrian pounds, something like that. Um, and so they'd literally be given this fat wad of notes. Go to the strip club or Yeah. Well, they did get to go to Kamishlo and stuff where there's this mythical burger bar that I never got to see because I was too busy sitting in a like half-blown-out school in a very quaint little village uh, down by the river. So you went to, so once you got split up and you are in Kobani... Then what? I mean, do, you, what, you introduced your new unit? and We got sent around here and there quite a bit. Or rather, we would go a step closer to where we were intended, spending like a night in another base. We'd go to Kobani, the, the main commander there or whatever would decide where we were supposed to go. And then we'd slowly, bit by bit, get close to that until we finally met up with um, this awesome commander. On it was so there's Tishrin Dam there, which is major dam on um, the Euphrates. Uh, I think it's at the bottom of Lake Assad, and we're in a in a, a base overlooking overlooking the dam on top of a major hill, like kind of strategic point, I guess. And um, we're sitting there chilling with the the guards there. And um, this front commander comes along who is basically, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Game of Thrones. um, Watched the first two seasons but gave up. Do you know Oberyn Martell? Was he in at that point? Who's he? The kind of, he's the kind of the bisexual kind of uh, Hispanic guy. Was he the swords? 
soul um, teacher. No, or was he the no, guy who could the um, who... fulfill all the wishes? No, was he uh, one of the dragons? No, I think he came a bit later because it's such a shame. Because the perfect way to describe this guy is that he was basically like that character's dad. He was this really awesome, softly spoken kind of like you could imagine him in basically every revolution from South America to played Spain by to uh, Benicio del Toro. Yeah, yeah, okay. something like that. Um, um, I was going to say, I was going to try and uh, say, oh, not say with this, and like fit this in at some point. But um, so I don't know if you guys are aware that soon there's a film going to be released called The Anarchist versus ISIS, and it's going to be based on that Rolling Stone article. No way. Yeah, and so oh, the Jake, Jake Gillen all yeah, um, fuck's sake, Jake's my hero as well. Yeah, yeah, mine too. Outside politics, though. Wasn't he in Jarhead? Yeah, yeah. yeah He's already basically done a movie that covers my experience in Java. <laughs> a lot of doing some spotting and getting really frustrated at not doing anything. And but, well, we got shot at more than Jake Gill. But I think because um, the idea was that it was he's meant to like uh, be a stand-in for like uh, Piss Pig Granddad. But obviously, it's a bit like of a. Who would play you in a film, Nate? Um, to get like the kind of like mannerisms and kind of like. Physical presence, it'd be after like Terry Crews, I think. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Josh, is. who's that? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll show you later. Like, what about you, Josh? Who would play me? Mm. Michael Sarah. That's a pretty good call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a rugged Michael Sarah. He he would need, or maybe um, the guy who who's um, Captain America, but before he gets Chris the Evans. serum, Evans. Yeah. Yeah, before yeah. he gets the yeah. serum, like literally, um, the guy serum being steroids. Yeah, what one of the guys? Uh, we need to get this first Matt out there. Um, calls me Captain America because I look like him before he had the serum. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first Captain what? before him, Captain pre-America. Yeah, <laughs> quality. What about you, Dan? God, I hate to think. Dina uh, Dunham, Charles Dance. <laughs> <laughs> class so if anyone out there you know michael sheen if you're listening and you want to kind of cast us for whatever reason they're they're the people to go to okay so so you meet this slick commander and what he's like you're in my squad yeah basically you Uh, come with me to the front to certain death revolution of all we will go to uh we'll go to my table and yes you will you will learn how to fight there don't worry it will be fine. So, kind of so what happens then? And you, you literally like, okay, we're in your Tabor meaning squad, or yeah, the t- Tabor, I guess, would be closer to a platoon or something. Yeah, and he was he was actually a higher commander than that, but oh, I think well. they were like his old lads yeah. or something. <laughs> but actually, before we go, he asks us, "Is there anything at all you could want?" And um, a wank. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 you you don't talk about wanking. You don't talk about farting. You don't talk about shitting. Any of that is completely off the table. You have to say things like instead of going to the toilet, it's like I have um business. I have you can needs. fart though. I have, uh, you don't want them to hear it, really. Yeah, I mean it was exaggerated when I first told uh, when I first turned up. They told me things like, you know, it's it's such a shame that people, if they farted in a, a, an important time, would kill themselves and stuff like that. But they were taking the piss a bit. But it is like it's it's considered a much ruder thing than it is over here. No slapstick. You can't just like go fart in the eunuch man's head like. Wee. No, that would <laughs> like be no a relief, like very <laughs> <a> big. <laughs> 
Just first first plane back home. Get him out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I got very very good at the the, the completely silent subtle fart. When you're sitting through seven hours of meetings, oh yeah, you need to fart eventually. Especially if you got like dysentery or whatever from the water. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, hold it in. So what what did you need when uh, he said there was one more? Yeah, my friend asked if we could. He said, "I've always wanted to swim in the Euphrates," and the commander said. Of course, we'll swim in the Euphrates so tomorrow. I, I saw a picture of the Euphrates because um, part of the article on um, the in, the interceptor, and I just couldn't get over how blue it was. It's mm. insane, like just how clear the water looked. It's really lovely. It, it was nice to swim in as well because we didn't believe him that we'd go tomorrow because it was always ah oh, tomorrow we'll leave tomorrow we'll yeah. do this tomorrow and it, it was it was never it was three days or it was whatever. But literally next day turns up there's an old Arab dude in the back of a truck with like this sheep with like a massive tumor in its neck um, and we argue over whether to eat the tumor i was on the side of the old arab dude i just thought we should cut it off at the neck and we can eat it it'd be fine we go and we have barbecue by the river and we swim around a bit and uh it was hilarious because one of the sort of lower commanders couldn't swim and wore like this this inflatable <laughs> vest and <laughs> no that is a flak jacket click 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 that's yeah. awesome. And then we went to the front, and and yeah, you know, at first we're a little bit further back, and is that how they structure it? But it's like you know, you start off, and then you you move, and basically creep closer. I think this commander was a particularly competent commander. So that's, that's what Fark do actually. Fark uh, always say like you know, you break people in gradually and closer yeah. and closer and closer. Fark yeah. being the revolutionary group in Colombia. So it's like you know, you build up from skim, you know skirmish and then it'll be you know right straight to like eventually into the front line yeah that's essentially how it how it turned out for me like we started off in a in a base that was you know it was in the front line village but it was in the center of the village not on the edge where where we had these guard posts sort of thing and we were with kind of the younger guys and the older guys in the unit would be sent off here and there to do this and that. And maybe if there was trouble, we would go to back up the guys at the front or, um, you know, we would go occasionally on patrol, just go around and get to know everyone, scout a little, something like that. Or we'd be sent up to this point on like a hill that overlooked the whole front where essentially they were, it was guarded by some, of the Arab allies who, you know, are just kind of clan yeah. fighters. And the view was that they would run away if they didn't have some YPG backing them up. And it's kind of one of the things that foreigners are there to do really is not to be Rambo and take yeah. down, you know, loads of it. it's just it's as, important. As it's a important role. kind of a, we're, we're like a kind of banner a lot yeah. of the time, you know, we're just a morale boosting thing. Um, hey look this person's come thousands of miles to help us fight you know and mm. and and especially if a foreigner's not running away it's going to be a lot less likely for someone there who's like well shit my home's nearby if this guy's not running away i can't run away and all this kind of thing and so, josh when you're in you know you said like you're in the house in the center of the town yeah presumably you're not just like you can't just chill out there you're not just you know they still have to be i guess so uh, this is something that, that I, I was going to mention earlier in in the sort of the ideology of it and everything is is that 
you know, it's all about Havalti and comradeship and stuff. And so when you live together, you eat together, you clean together, everyone goes on guard, except the commander, just for, I mean, just for the sensible thing. You don't want your commander on guard and him to be the first guy shot. Um, all, all this kind of stuff. Um, so there, there would be some level of work or communal life. And, and like I said, you know, if we got sent off to the to the hill we would be you know up for absolute hours watching the front line with a thermal scope or whatever and you know a lot of the time we were getting shelled with mortars we got we basically got shelled every day constantly for about two weeks and i don't know how but they didn't manage to hit anyone or even the village half of the time um, but there's just constantly mortar shells going overhead and everything. It wasn't for a while until we were sent up to a kind of conscript unit of mostly Arab guys up on the side. They're in this kind of farmhouse with like square kind of compound walls and everything. And we got sent up to basically our sharpshooter, uh, me and this Canadian guy who I was with. Um, and we were all given a different type of sniper rifle. I had a, a it's called a Karnas, um, a Dragunov. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, the Kurdish guy had the um, uh, 50 caliber sniper rifle, looked nice. like the one off bloody uh, Halo. My Canadian friend had a 1939 Mosin Nagant. Wow. I fired a Mosin Nagant. It's it's a nice gun. Into that, kicks, in, into that crowd, nice. wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a real kick on it. A classic gun. Mm. Is that that the Russian one? Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. But it's it's it literally had a red star stamp really, yeah. on no. it and everything. Like literally straight out of the factories in 1939, been fucking killing fascists for what 70 years. Well, I mean, this is the argument for you know communism taking over the means of production, isn't it? It's basically you have like a good product that's going to last over 70 years. Kalashnikov. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The Kalashnikov is indestructible weapon. Yeah, I I have literally done that thing that everyone always talks about. Of, of burying it in the sand and then picking it out of, and, and firing it again. It got like a bit of a, a berm collapsed on me, essentially, and covered covered my rifle. Obviously, I stuck my hands in, pulled it straight out. The whole thing was caked and still fired. Still perfectly fine. Cleaned right. it out, no problems ever. Man. So you sent out with the, the rifles, the compound to the Arab guys. Yeah, that's it. And uh, essentially, my Canadian friend spots a uh, spots an ISIS guy sneaking around the edge of this village and drops him. And then uh, everything goes to shit. And they bring up a uh, like an armored suicide car and all this kind of shit. Truck full of blokes. And uh, I actually don't see that much of what goes on because obviously everyone runs to the wall and everything i get i get i'm holding this sniper rifle right and i've told them the whole time you, you do realize i'm not a sniper right i don't really know how to do it it's like you know, no it's fine it's fine you've just got to look out for things you just got to use the scope it's fine and then obviously everything goes to shit and i'm still holding the sniper rifle and i'm thinking oh shit they're going to want me to get involved in some kind of enemy in the gates, counter sniper, mm. bloody bullshit. And I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to get shot and I, they're going to get shot and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be a really important thing. Oh God. And then, uh, the Canadian guy's just like, come on, let's go. And I just, I just drop the sniper rifle and pick up my Kalashnikov and feel 
hell of a lot better. But then we're just on this side of the wall where most of the attack's coming from the other side. So I basically do nothing um, until the kind of attack dies down. We get shelled with mortars and uh, we decide to leave because well, there's no point being here while they're shelling us. Mm. So that was about that. And that's, um, your, that's your first that kind was of the, the baptism fire. Yes. What was it? What was it like? Can I ask? I mean, I mean, obviously, it sounds just surreal, chaotic. It was a bit because you mean how Evans yelling in Arabic and mostly, yeah, a bit of Arabic, bit of Kurdish. See, actually, I've I've shortened the story a little bit because um, I did spot what turned out to be this kind of armored suicide car um, a bit before this happened, and I saw a guy get out and he was moving around in this field. And I was staring at him through this scope, thinking, "Yeah, who's I can't guy? tell whether he's got a gun. I yeah. can't tell what he's doing. Is it? Why has he come out of that massive-looking car? Like it's quite distant. I can't see that it's all plated and shit quite at this distance. Kind of just looks like a big truck. I'm thinking, well, what the fuck is he doing? And he's really close to the front line. And now he just wants to check his like carrots or whatever ever's in that field. Like this is a bit weird. So I call." I call the commander there kind of thing, and I'm like, look, I can see this. Like, what the hell's going on? And he grabs some binoculars, has a look through, and he's like, oh, I'm not sure. And then calls someone else. And they go, don't really know about this. Doesn't have ISIS on his car. But, uh, no. Back Are you ISIS? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, special delivery. Uh, Caliphate and co. <laughs> So basically, long story short, they they call this higher commander who's this like awesome uh, kind of stocky old Kurdish woman. And she comes up. She doesn't like the look of it. So she brings along a Deutschka truck. And so basically, by the time all this shit kicks off, we've got, you know, some heavier weapons. We've got a bunch of the YPJ there and stuff like that. So there's a mixture of, it's not just the local Arab guys. There's a bunch of Kurds there as well. Uh, there's me and the Canadian guy. There were some hilarious moments where, you know, this Canadian dude, uh, Naz is trying to communicate with the rocket launcher guy who speaks Arabic um, just through mime and like their mime for for like big explosive truck and so it's quite um in the it was surreal in the, break the out time. a quick pictionary before the battle like yeah Sh- charades whatever it is i mean are you thinking like i i don't want to die like i don't you know this is you know not what i was expecting sort of thing or the weird... do you know what i mean at any, at any stage you thinking this isn't what I signed up for. I don't. I don't want to be here anymore. No, the weird thing is, I was quite scared at the beginning, but part of the reason was that, I mean, one obviously, like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on and everything, but part of the reason was, you know, not oh shit, I'm going to die, but it's oh shit, I'm going to die performing a crucial role that I'm completely incompetent yeah. for. So I'm going to die totally pointlessly. Yeah, that's And it was, you know, as soon as I grabbed my AK, I kind of felt fine. Yeah. And and it was the same throughout a lot of it, is that... It's not death itself. It, yeah, it was, it was like the things that got me worse were feelings of letting other people down and stuff like that. And or Or being, 
you know, after we we eventually got bombed by the Turks, um, and you know, a lot of people died, and after that, you know, I narrowly survived the airstrike on the house I was in, and after that, I was a lot more scared of kind of, but but again, it was only immediately, like afterwards, um, when it was still. When it was over, but the threat was still immediate. But then I was mostly still just sad and had a pounding headache and all that kind of stuff. But like, actually, at the time, it's kind of always too busy to be scared. Mm. You know what I mean? Or it was just kind of like, or, or get upset or anything like this. It was just you know, if you if you're worrying about, in a way, if you're worrying about whether you're going to die, you're almost more likely to die because you're not concentrating on what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. And yeah, that was kind of it. And that, so that's the first action. Yeah. And I felt really disappointed afterwards because I felt I'd, I had been kind of useless. Like I, I'd spotted that truck or whatever, but... Yeah, that's the, that's the know, worry. I just, like a, just I don't want to be a burden to anyone. And yeah. Just what are they doing? Just hang on. Like. Yeah, I was just on a section of wall where there was nothing. So I, I didn't fire my rifle. I didn't really do anything I, d- I was just kind of there and afterwards i kind of felt bad about that but it wasn't a massive fight anyway hmm. uh, they they sent a second assault actually after we had gone that sounded a lot more intense as well it seems like the local the local guys were just kind of having a crack at attacking us sort of thing and then well, when like they got sort of fought off the they feet, decided out to, sort of thing. yeah yeah send a bigger assault and then you go back to the squad. Yep. And does it sort of keep kicking off then, or is it just fits and spurts? Definitely fits and spurts. I mean, about two weeks into to being there, we advance, take a few more villages and towns. Um, I miss a lot of that for because of having diarrhea, but I was there like kind of in the opening stages and all this kind you of stuff. You cursed it originally, but it turned out to may have saved your life. Hmm? Diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. Uh, and actually, yeah, not long after that, we ended up having to spend like a week in the military hospital because we got like a really bad fever. Um, it was like, yeah, it was, it, it was a little bit more than diarrhea. But you know, with that as well, we were still, there was like a front wave going in and then we were part of, or I was part of the group going in um, afterwards, just sort of, securing the area directing refugees coming through and all that kind of shit not an enormous amount happened there mostly just uh well more refugees and all that kind of stuff bit of fire i i saw another isis guy and as i raised my rifle he got torn apart by a doishka so i didn't get to fire my rifle that time either do you mean were they trying to sneak up on the the village or Sometimes. I mean, in in this case, in well, in that particular case, we had advanced quite a few kilometers and it was sort of, we were supposed to be in an area that was cleared. Mm. And what's funny, actually, is when this firefight started, I was actually on the toilet. So I'd ask the squad commander, I was like, look, it's, it's been hours. I really need a shit. Like, how safe, if, if you know, if it's safe to go for a shit, I'll go for a shit. If, if not, you know, whatever. Um, he's like, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, there's no dash here. Go to the toilet, yeah, go ahead. 
And of course, as soon as I get on the toilet, it turns out, yeah, Daesh are here. Next cubicle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're out of roll. Like. <laughs> <laughs> it just passes out under the yeah. list. Like that. Yeah. Right, and then, okay, so, um, so this is pretty soon after you've got there, essentially. Yeah, it's about six weeks after I got there. And I guess just what happens then? I mean, just you get into a rhythm of the same sort of stuff. Yeah, for, from from then it's kind of like we eventually settle in a in a town much further down. There's a massive abandoned school literally on the front line. We sit there for another month or so with, you know, all kinds of American planes going across the top. We get attacked by ISIS a couple of times, fight them off. I'm mostly at this point I'm mostly working as a spotter, so to speak. Like whenever, you know, most of the time I'm translating for uh, my friend who I'm with. And then when everything kicks off, I'm using binoculars to, you know, help the sniper, help the guys with the big Deutsche cannons, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're like a kilometer from the nearest village. And so I got an AK that can fire reliably at about 400 meters, maybe. And stuff like that. So so normally I'm just doing that kind of thing. We're watching, you know, dash troop movements, trying to work out when they're going to attack us, all this kind of stuff. Do you feel more, you know, after the initial use of that frustration, do you feel you start to get feel a bit more, well, not competent, but, you know... Yeah, yeah. By, by that time, I felt like I kind of knew what I was doing. I was a lot more comfortable with the, with the fighting. I... I fired my rifle for the first time at a suicide bomber, a suicide car at some point during this period. Yeah, saw some pretty mad shit. Did get really bored at times as well. Like there was a lot of lot of time of nothing happening and 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 that that's the problem then is I didn't go as a kind of gung-ho kind of fighter sort of person, but when you're not doing much at all and you get used to the fighting and everything, then you just you're like wishing for Daesh to attack just so you've got something to do. Like, no reading material or anything like that. Can't even bust one out. Not can you? really. No. Yeah, that's, that is hard, isn't it? Just sitting there like. Like, we, we had a TV with a satellite that we could sometimes get working, or we, we'd hook it up to a car battery so we could watch it. But then it's like, you've got. 20, 30 guys in the same building with one TV and they have this horrible tendency to just turn the channel constantly. They'll old man. Turn the channel when there's kissing. They'll turn the channel when there's adverts, to be fair. Some of, on right. some of the channels, the adverts are really fucking long, but they won't go back to what you were watching before. <laughs> You'll like never watch a whole, whole film because they, they'll turn it over or there'll be a power cut or something like that, or there'll be a false alarm, or so, and then you're just like it would tip you over the edge, wouldn't it? I mean, if you if you're there bored, and then after like a month of TV signal, and then I don't know, Big Bang Theory or, or some shit like Will and Grace or something comes on, you pick up some Yank shows, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm can off. you imagine just like oh, <laughs> just sh- running towards show us Big Bang Theory <laughs> or just pray for an attack? <laughs> <laughs> so can, can you you can actually see. ISIS in the distance, essentially, troop or some form of troop movements, they're that close. Sometimes, yeah. Like, looking through the binoculars and stuff, because obviously they don't, they don't make themselves obvious. But there are some things that you can tell by 
I'd say if a small group of men is walking around pointing at things, you know, maybe keep an eye on them. Maybe they're plotting something, even if they're in civilian clothes, like who knows. Sometimes before a major attack, they will bring up like a truck full of dudes that what you would imagine to be ISIS. Um, you know, the guys all in black, all that kind of stuff, looking kind of hard and professional yeah. stuff in the back of this truck. Um, a lot of the other guys are just like locals with an AK or whatever and and don't fight so well. Um, you know, they're not the hardcore. Other times, you know, you'd see a certain truck go into the village and stop at different places at a reasonably regular kind of rate. And, you know, that is most likely a logistics truck. So you make a note of what houses they stop at, try and work out where maybe the Daesh fighters are, you know, bedding down or whatever. If there's a lot of guys on motorbikes going back and forth between like two particular points, then it's likely that those two points have a commander in and so on and so forth. This kind of thing. You, you don't really ever see ISIS until they're firing at you. But there's a lot of times where you can work out that you're seeing ISIS, you know what I mean. What's your opinion of their like, military capabilities? and um, ISIS? Uh, it really depends because, you know, I was on just a section of front uh, like any other kind of thing. Not particularly strategically significant. It was like the eastern bank of the Euphrates, that kind of flank. That's something at least, but... Luckily, most of the guys that I fought down there were pretty shit. You know, they they their snipers weren't that good. They didn't manage to kill me or my friend at any point. They didn't put up a great amount of resistance to us, and we managed to fight off their attacks every time. There were other guys who fought in Mambidge, fought in especially Mambidge. They had a lot of their hardcore there. They were, you know, very smart, very hard, um, caused a lot of casualties. You know, they really vary between super, yeah. super smart and four lions kind of people, you yeah. know? So. Interesting. Okay, so there's an article in the, in the Intercept, Josh, which we'll put out, um, and obviously details about how you, know, you and your comrades basically got hit by a Turkish airstrike. Our NATO allies, mm. you know, bombed the YPG, which is obviously extremely traumatic, um, and you lost several comrades. And, and I guess just interested then, were you planning on staying out for longer? I mean, I don't talk to the airstrike itself, but like, what happened to... What did you do after that? Immediately after, I was a bit shaken up. I mean, like, when I saw myself afterwards, you know, in the mirror, I looked completely different. Um, so the, all the dust and my eyes were fucked and everything. I thought I wasn't wounded. It turned out later, like, I've got a little crack in my skull and everything. I went, like, headfirst into a wall and somehow got straight back up again. <laughs> And after that, I I spoke to my commander and basically said, look, you know, I lost quite a lot of good friends. Was one of the, I, was, I was the only person to walk out on two feet from that building. Um, and so just send me to the front against ISIS again, you know, like down in the south, send me down to the Raqqa front. You know, there were the preliminary stages of the Racker operation going on then. That was what we all really wanted to be doing and stuff like that. And I was like, look, I need to kind of sort myself out after 
after all that and avoid going back into the place where we're just going to get bombed by the Turks again. But I actually didn't immediately want to go home. I still had about a month to go before my kind of six months was up. And I was still thinking before I was thinking of maybe staying longer and afterwards I was still thinking of staying longer. But when that month passed, I was still, I was still in the same unit away from the front board. We were like in, so, so the first unit I was in was a, was a front line to board. But afterwards, me and the Canadian guy went like kind of on this mad journey, like to try and get some heavy weapons and ended up going back to the academy. And then I went back out with another group of foreigners um, and I was like translating for them and everything. Um, and this was in a an assault table, which they are basically kept behind and they go on the major operations. Um, or if there's like a big assault breaking through the lines, they're sent to patch up the hole and all that kind of stuff. You know, so so we went we went on this operation. We we took this town. We got bombed by the Turks, and then we go back to our base uh, east of the Euphrates. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm still just sitting there. I'm really missing my friends. I lost you know one of my favorite people I've ever known. Uh, one of the volunteers. There are a lot of good kids and everything as well. Is that my pleasure? Yeah. Uh, he was he was you know one of a kind sort of person and and I just wanted to go and like I didn't go to fight ISIS and a lot of what I was doing well like I didn't go specifically for that and a lot of what I was doing was you know around the kind of thing it was it was translating it was solving problems within the unit it was trying to get people to you know get along essentially and all that kind of stuff but at this point I just wanted to go and fight them and be somewhere where I would be distracted a bit and not and you know maybe having some friendly planes would get me out of like getting twitchy every time I heard a you know an engine nearby and stuff but yeah just sitting around again being really bored we got some more foreigners coming in who you know brought new problems with them and it got six months and it was like, yeah, yeah, we're going, we're going to Raqqa, we're going to Raqqa, we're going to Raqqa. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. My mum thinks I'm coming home. And, um, you know, now I just feel like knowing my luck, we're going to go to Raqqa the, the first day on the operation. I'm just going to get shot in the face and that's going to be it. Just when all my family and my friends think I'm coming home, I'm tired and I'm sick of this shit. Um, and so, yeah. I decided to come back. Even then, it was still like a really hard decision. And and up until the point, on, on the very last day, that I was arranged to go back to the academy so I could be smuggled back across the border to Iraq and go home. And the very last day, they were like, oh, we've got one more job for you. You're going to the Raqqa front today with all these foreigners because you're getting transferred to one of our kind of sister assault units that's already there. And, uh, you, you know, you can go along and uh, you can uh, help them get settled in and everything to us under there, blah, blah, blah. Make sure the foreigners understand what we're talking about and so on and so forth. And to be honest, I, my commander didn't really want me to go. So I think he hoped that if I saw, you know, it was, oh, I'm back on the front, I might change my mind. But I was like, are you fucking joking? 
Um, <laughs> so, so I went along and I did all that and I was still, there was that little bit of me that wanted to stay, but you know, it was the kind of thing of like, I put it to the group of foreigners and they said, you know, you're the guy who's, who's like, oh, I'm two days from retirement exactly. and I'm going on one more mission with the boys and I was definitely going to die. So, <laughs> so I went home instead and then two more of my friends got killed on the Racker operation like while, while I was in the safe house in Iraq and I felt really guilty about it for quite a while. Even after seeing all the horror of the, the airstrikes and stuff, it it doesn't make it easy because again it's not it's not the dying it's the it's the shame and it's the guilt and it's all that kind of thing that that you're really scared of if you have any bit of a conscience anyway okay so you you, you come back home and then you get nicked yep yeah well obviously as i was just talking about how much i wanted to fight i'm a dangerous <laughs> radicalized terrorist not a slightly fucked up veteran that kind of just needs a good welcome home no that couldn't possibly tr be true is it um yeah so i got arrested as soon as i got home then uh you know originally they arrested me for basically just commission of terrorist acts and then they finally charged me with with uh, having terrorist information for having a partial copy of the anarchist cookbook that I'd printed off in my fucking university library some years before. And then I had to go on trial with that and I, and I won that. And it was all uh, a completely ridiculous farce. And it was not, I'd expected to be spoken to by the police, but it was not quite how I expected being welcomed home, you know, um, with the actual arrest and the actual kind of yeah, for for actually doing terrorist things, it's ridiculous. I mean, I bet I barely committed war, let alone war crimes or terrorism. Did you see any um, British jihadists on the plane home? Like, <laughs> um, luckily, I don't think so. I was actually mostly with just like, oh hello, Iraqi housewives and stuff. The real housewives of Iraq. Yeah, <laughs> real housewives of Baghdad with their like four children and stuff, just having a normal time. And now you're back. I guess what you what do you make of what's going on in in Kurdistan and Syria at the moment? Well, it's absolutely shameful that the Turks have attacked Afrin. It's it's you know they'd managed to keep the war out for basically the whole time until the Turks invaded. The, these were places that were untouched by all the horrors that had gone on, and now young women are disappearing. People have been mutilated. They've been robbed. Um, we've lost about a thousand members of the YPG. Um, yeah, because they're facing a full NATO army. Yeah, with light weapons and no body armor, and they've got tanks and yeah. planes. And... Turkey's the second biggest military in the yeah, world. It's yeah, yeah, they they more than make up for their lack of competence with uh, their uh, with their sheer numbers. You know, as hordes tend to. Um, although the Mongol hordes were very competent, but anyway, Seb, the postal um, system. Who are the Mongols? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they 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 had one of the first intelligence corps as well. Oh. Um, they they actually appreciated the value of scribes and stuff. They used to send them around to like record all that was going on in uh, various places and then recite it to the Mongols, who the, the commanders being illiterate. Quite um, multicultural as well, I think. Mm. They, they just accept everyone who, who came in and... Um, okay. Yeah, Ogangus like Yeah, no, it's quality-like. Yeah, Marxist, Marxism Temujinism is, is one of my favourite <laughs> ideologies, you know? Just unite all the peoples under the sky. Mm. Um, uh, destroy all borders with um, 
and create new ones. And so, you, so basically, the West have essentially allowed the Turks to invade Afrin, um, ostensibly under the pretense of, of you know, what Erdogan says, fighting terrorism. But obviously, it's because he's been itching to sort of crush the the revolution since day one, and yeah. it's also facilitated the comeback of ISIS in in areas where it was previously almost wiped out because all the Kurds are now tied up. Yeah, well, Turkey was collaborating with ISIS for yeah. a long time. They attacked us from across the border. The Turkish border guards shot at our ambulances and other vehicles that passed the road near the border. And they, you know, despite the fact of the PKK even, has wanted to make peace for decades now. And the there's been the actions of the Turkish state, essentially, that have undermined that. Obviously, these these conservative Islamist uh, people in the AKP don't want a socialist feminist revolution over their border, let alone a Kurdish one. Um, and you know they want more power for their favorite head choppers in the um, in the negotiations that come afterwards. So they've just you know rebranded their old ISIS friends, got a load of the worst Al Qaeda people from in the barely functioning gangs of the FSA and uh, have have sent them in to uh, destroy Afrin and do the same shit that they were doing before. And what about, I mean, what do you make of the ongoing discussions about, you know, what to do about Assad and the idea that West might, well, they're already bombing Syria, but, you know, to continue. The Syrian people have suffered enough. Assad has won the war um, and, you know, okay, maybe if they attack the SDF that, the SDF after everything they've done deserve a bit of help but everything should be geared towards getting a, a diplomatic uh, settlement at the end of this if we can secure autonomy for the areas that have been secured so far then there can be this direct civil tension between the democratic system in the north and the autocratic system in the south and um, you know I believe that within time, the Assad regime itself would collapse or at least be solidly undermined by this. Immense. All right, Josh, thanks so much for sharing your experiences. It's been really, well, moving and, yeah, just really insightful and interesting and just so knowledgeable. <laughs> Lastly, is there any anyone you'd like to give a shout-out to or start a beef with? Well, obviously, uh, start a beef with my man Erdogan. <laughs> where he's coming to May, um, so fight me 1v1 IRL. <laughs> and give a shout-out to, um, obviously, all all my comrades out in Syria and back home. And, yeah, that'll that'll be about it. Oh, and especially the um, Bristol Kurdistan Solidarity Network and everyone go and help your local kids. Thanks so much, Josh. Um, for those of you who are interested... The Intercept article that we referenced throughout the pod will be linked on Twitter and within the SoundCloud episode description for you to read, uh, which will be good to accompany this episode as it touched on stuff that you know we didn't talk about. Also, a few of you may have noticed on Twitter that we've got t-shirts back in stock. However, due to the huge popularity of people wanting to look you know, really good this summer, They've almost all sold out apart from a few small sizes and a few mediums. So if you're on the fence about getting one, jump on it now because they'll be gone pretty soon. 
We're also going to have some stickers really soon. Uh, these have been designed by our in-house graphic designer, Oliver, who uh, we pay a handsome salary to because he's a handsome man. So we'll have about four designs going on a sticker for you to just stick where you like. You know, you stick it on a friend, stick it on an enemy. It's, it's very versatile. So we're planning to post some of those within the T-shirts that you got pre-ordered. However, if you are desperate for a T-shirt, um, just send us a message on Twitter and we'll send it straight away. Obviously, the penalty then will... You won't get any free stickers. So, you know, that's your call to make. Shoutouts for me, shoutouts to our friend Glenn Page, who helped us get in contact with Josh and make this episode happen. So, a big shout out to him. Um, my beef this week is with YouTube reaction videos. Probably no one cares what you think about the new Marvel trailer. So, you know, just text your friends and, you know, let them say that they don't care. Shoutouts for. Dan, uh, to his saxophone teacher, Mark, who's not only taught him to play the saxophone, but has also helped him deal with his inner demons and harness those through the beautiful music of sax. And Dan's beefs are with the Welsh government, as you could probably all guess, because he hates them, as do I. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye. Jamie! Jamie, your friends are here. Jamie? Change, you know what I'm saying? I don't want that shit on TV. What do you I don't want motherfuckers seeing me getting changed. Turn you know what I'm saying? He's pulling his goal. You don't fucking care. What the fuck are you doing, J Rock? I was getting changed, motherfucker. Change my ass. You're you fucking not cranking knocking it. motherfuckers. That was fucked. That was a bit fucked. It wasn't that fucked, you know what I'm saying? I was getting changed. What's going on? Listen, man, I got some good news for you. Get cleaned up, meet me back at the flea market. I. Peace, bum. Don't touch me. <laughs> you motherfuckers ain't gonna tell nobody that I was getting no, changed, right? No, Christ, no.